0: I'll be um, speaking using the English standard version uh, with the new international version. So if I, I'm reading it a bit differently, that's um, just, that's why. Well, sometimes what is completely fair can also seem utterly disappointing. A number of years ago, I went to a conference in Auckland flying Air New Zealand, and back in those days, I don't know if it still happens today, but back in those days, if you asked for a free upgrade, occasionally they'd look and say, "Well, yes." Absolutely, we'll give it to you. And on this day, my friend asked on our behalf if we could have a free upgrade to business class. And to our surprise, the answer was yes. Go Air New Zealand, great airline, we thought. Soon after, we headed towards the business class lounge for a classy couple of hours while we waited. And when we got to the business class lounge, we presented our boarding passes to the woman who said, I'm sorry. The business class lounge isn't for those with free upgrades. What? No business class for us. We're business class passengers being denied our lounge. Air New Zealand, what kind of airline is this? We walked away a tad humiliated and disappointed. Sometimes what is completely fair can also be very disappointing. In trivial matters like an airport lounge, but... Also in more serious matters, of course. A business that fails under the, the harsh realities of economics. Fair, but so crushing and so disappointing and leaving one with a terrible debt. Could be a marriage under strain for various reasons. Watching someone you love marry someone else. Someone else gets the invitation, the praise, the promotion, the job. Your ministry, perhaps at church, that not only isn't growing but seems to be dying despite all your efforts and prayer. It may be just hearing true but hurtful feedback about something you've done or the work you've been doing. What is fair, good, right can also be terribly disappointing. I remember hearing of a minister share his story. He was getting close to retirement age and he shared of decades of his ministry life unmet expectations, disappointments. And I noticed there was no positive talk of God in this life story. Something wasn't right. And something wasn't right when I sat down with a third-year Bible college student some years ago as well, having had some health setbacks and a relationship challenge. He said that he was really, and excuse the language, but he was peed off with God. God wasn't doing what my friend expected. God wasn't what he wanted God to be. Perhaps you have felt something similar in your life, or you're in that right now, and disappointed with the God who is in control. Or perhaps, if not now, it will be next month, next year, the time coming. How do we overcome disappointment with life? And in particular, with God, if we're Christians and we're, we're aware God is behind everything. What should we expect as God's people? How do we understand God's kingdom so that our story isn't like those sad examples, stories of confused disappointment? Well, Jesus helps us with this parable. And so in verse 1, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like this scenario. The kingdom of heaven is like a master whose ways won't seem fair. Look with me at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master or NIV, a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. Verse five, we read, So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And we don't know why the master returns to the marketplace. Perhaps more work needs to be done. Um, Perhaps it's through his kindness, but all seems to be well and good so far. The arrangement's working. And as the story continues, we detect there may be some compassion in the landowner as he takes on more workers, almost as though it's for the workers' sake that he's taking them. After all, a day hoping for work all day long and not getting it was a disappointing day, a bad day. As it still is in much of the world. If you don't work, you might not eat that night or the next day or a couple of days away. I remember when we were living in Mongolia, one of my friends doing a taxi shift one night to buy food and nappies so that his daughter could have the nappies for the night and food for the next day. In many societies, the first question one would hear when they get home is, did you get any work? So amazingly, at the 11th hour, that is about 5 p.m., we read, verse 6, that the master went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7, they said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in the vineyard. 5 p.m., well, I guess it's better late than never. Let's go and do some work. We might get something for showing up, right? And something's better than nothing. But you can feel the tension and even surprise build as it comes time to get their wages in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The order is important. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each each received a denarius they came at around 5pm and they get a whole working day's pay I know there's pay disputes going on at the moment union disputes but this is outrageous 5pm arrival, whole day's pay just imagine the delight this master seems too good to be true so it probably is too good to be true right whole day's pay for hardly any work It's confusing, but the denarius doesn't lie and they're clutching it in their hand. It's really happened. It's a happy walk home, maybe a skip and a laugh along the way. And I imagine that the other workers still in the line for their wage might have started whispering among themselves. Does this master have more money than sense? Is he from another planet? And what's this going to mean for us? What do you reckon? We're going to get two, three, five, even ten denarii for our day's work? But alas, we read, the master keeps his word and only pays them what he promised. Can you believe it? And it goes down like a lead balloon, verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner grumble this is not a nice word in the bible it's the word israel used to describe israel grumbling against moses and against god for bringing them out of egypt and putting them to the test going through trials it's the word used of the older brother grumbling in the the parable of the prodigal son grumbling at the, the good treatment of the younger brother It's the word used of the Pharisees grumbling when Jesus eats with sinners who don't deserve God's kindness toward them. It's the word the Apostle Paul uses when he says, do all things without grumbling. But as grumblers by nature, we can easily guess what they're grumbling about in verse 12. These workers worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us. Notice the lens of self-pity there. We have Born the burden of the day and the scorching heat the heat of the day. they sound like Jonah don't they if you're familiar with Jonah in the Old Testament complaining about the scorching heat, annoyed that God is so kind to others who don't deserve his kindness at all. I knew you would be gracious and kind God that's why I didn't want to share the gospel the good news with these people. Disappointment if unrestrained can turn so quickly, into resentment, indignation, self-pity. And this can last not only for days and weeks, that's bad, but the danger is it can last for years and even decades, miserable decades. So there's the problem, the danger, the avoidable prison which many a soul, even Christian souls, have locked themselves. Perhaps one serious thing that just holds onto us for years, I know of stories like that, Perhaps just a habit where it's just a residual resentment, self-pity that goes day after day. Point one then, the kingdom of heaven is like a master whose ways won't seem fair. But point two, heaven's king is just, free, and generous, verses 13 to 16. Having so far just enjoyed the story, in verses 13 to 16, Jesus drives home the point for us. He doesn't leave us guessing. First, the master explains to the upset worker that what he has done is completely fair and just. And we know the same is true of God. Look at verse 13 and notice the way Jesus describes the gentleness of the master. He takes the time to explain himself and an angry worker he calls friend. He answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. And notice two important things for matching, if we're going to match our expectations in life with the kingdom reality. Firstly, the master has been just. God is always at least just in his dealings with us. I don't know what you're going through. It may seem terribly unfair, but you can be sure God is just in it. And really happy to talk to you about that if you'd like to, with me or someone else on team or other brothers and sisters around the church. God is just. Sometimes we do need to process it with others. But secondly, from the second half of verse 14, the master, and the Lord as well, is free to be generous. The master rightly says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Of course he is. Two critically important truths then to overcome and avoid disappointment. One, recognize God is always just. And two, recognize God is free to be generous. God's gifts are always God's to give. He never owes us anything. He is no man's debtor. His blessings are never earned or deserved so much as distributed. God's blessings are never deserved so much as distributed. And so, friends, we're gravely mistaken when we think good effects are tied to us as the chief cause. We deserve better to our merits and our ability. No, God's grace better explains our and others' blessedness. And then the killer line comes in verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I have with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Literally, in another translation, sometimes in a footnote, is your eye evil because I am good? That's idiom that's been translated this way. How sad it is that God's good to someone produces an evil in me. There's something wrong there, isn't there? It's really sinister. It's devilish. But that's what envy's like, isn't it? The neighbor's good, strong ox, someone's beautiful wife or their great husband, the friend's car, their house, their family, their fitness, their health, their career progression. The praise people share with you about someone else's gifts. Isn't that annoying? And we take a sick delight when we hear of other people's failure as well, as though that somehow helps us. This envy comes from a very sick heart, everyday envy. Envy is sometimes called the evil eye for good reason, the green-eyed monster, as Shakespeare called it. Jealousy, he observed, takes an otherwise sane, kind person and turns it into a monster, blind and mad. How much of this lies, I wonder, beneath our our world's mental health crisis? Spiritual problems, underlying mental and physical problems. Spiritual problems that rob us of peace and joy and stronger relationships. Jesus' wisdom helps his people avoid this and many other poisons. Just take Christian parenting, for example. Or teenagers and kids, you might just take this as your own example. One one of you gets invited to a party and the other doesn't. One of your siblings gets the gelato and the other doesn't. I've had to say a lot of times to my kids, as I've learned myself, I won't name them, child one. Don't you love your brother, child two? Yes. Well, then aren't you happy that He got something good. Can't you rejoice in his happiness? No, yes, no. (laughs) Some parents seem to think it's necessary to make everything equal all the time. But teaching kids to love others means they will learn to enjoy seeing others receive good things. Now, we never want to be cruel with that. But teaching loving gratitude in place of selfish envy... To love God and neighbour leads us to praise God for his kindness to others. Now, Dremoyne's a wealthy suburb. Great Porsche, Ferrari you've got there. Thank you, God, he has that car to enjoy. Isn't that lovely? That's terrific. Rejoicing in the happiness, the strong relationships, the blessings that we see others enjoy. God's kingdom is not ruled by cold, hard merit. No, it sees God's warm, fantastic grace everywhere. That's what Christians experience and see and enjoy. Envy is of the world. Thankfulness is of God's kingdom. Envy saddens. Thankfulness gladdens. Thank God for his wonderful strengths. He's always just. He's always free. He's always generous. To others as well as to us. And then what may seem a tad jarring at first is the conclusion in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. Now what's this got to do with the parable? It may seem jarring at first. It's also the way that the last verse of the last chapter concludes. And so it brackets this parable. And it holds it together beautifully. Jesus is teaching us the ways of God's kingdom do not match human expectations. We need to learn our way out of that. That God's way of looking at things doesn't just require a new prescription for our glasses, but it requires a new head, a new heart, new eyes. How do we then overcome disappointment? No, God is just. We've seen that. In generous. We've seen beware envy. Treat it like a cancer best removed before the spiritual harm spreads and deepens and with eternal consequences for your fruitfulness. You know, in Mongolia, I found myself so easily, regularly envying those with better language, more ministry fruit, stronger relationships. They'd been there more years. As a pastor in Walker, the Anglican church, when I was a Presbyterian minister, it seemed bigger and stronger. And the Anglican ministers had regular training and supported each other. Then, when I was a Bible college lecturer at SMBC, other lecturers published more than I did. Or they taught classes that the students called their favourite classes. At DPC, comparing myself or our church with those who appear stronger is just as silly. But worse than silly, it's destructive, evil, and disappointing all at once. I wonder have you been living with unhealthy comparison? unhealthy expectations, envy. Besides thankfulness as a powerful vaccine and as a remedy, another way to avoid unnecessary disappointment is to what I call hold loosely and hold tightly. Hold loosely and hold tightly. What do I mean? Well, I think the parable promotes the wisdom of holding loosely to detailed plans and expectations, specific goals, for what should or shouldn't happen in our lives, what God should or shouldn't do in his freedom and graciousness. One denarii, I expected five. God, where were you? Where are you in this? So too, I and our church can pray that God will spiritually grow our church and add numbers to our church, people coming to be saved, that the youth group will grow, that we'll have extra leaders for home groups, that our finances will support plan A rather than plan B. The sick will become well soon, that we would become more and more prayerful and hospitable, more like a family than friendly. But these are terrible platforms for my daily contentment and joy and peace. What are you hoping for? Is it in God and his promises primarily? Or are you more wanting and wanting mostly from God what he hasn't promised at all? Perhaps we think we'll be more content with a boyfriend, the girlfriend, the spouse, if we only look different to the way we do, if we gain some weight or lost some weight, if we'd be content if a broken relationship was restored by God, if the mortgage was only half the size it was, if only we got the marks, the promotion, the job, the certain project completed that's been plaguing us. If only we knew what we should do next with our life, then we'd be content. All of these are unworthy places to rest our contentment. Rather, we're strong and firm and steadfast when we realise our gracious Lord will give what our gracious Lord will give. But it gets better because by learning to hold loosely to these uncertain outcomes, we're freed to hold more tightly to what is certain. We can cling to King Jesus himself, the teacher of this parable, who is always just and free and generous. He will never be otherwise toward us. He alone will never disappoint you. Your church family certainly will if you've been around long enough. He, not your ambitions or hopes, is alone worthy of your heart. Your king who knows what you need, Trusting him means you don't need to wrestle or manipulate people or circumstances to get something you need. We need never grumble about our lot, painful and terrible though it can be. The Psalms help us realise, lament, there is difficulty. But through those difficulties we're blessed if we major on the major himself. Whatever our just, free, generous God gives or does not give, We as a church will, by his grace, trust him and love him and cheerfully serve him, come what may. We're not to be God's fair-weather friends, DPC. Friends with God as long as we get certain things that we want from him. We're more like his son than that, aren't we? More like his trusting, grateful children. Whatever circumstances you're in, Are there certain circumstances you just need to accept as part of God's will? Are there expectations of God you need to drop that instead you entrust to God and still pray about them but know they're within his will? Because this trust honors God very much. Do you remember in the Old Testament in in the story of Solomon? God offered King Solomon whatever he would like and Solomon Pleased God by asking for wisdom, that he would rule well and wisely over God's people. Our prayers express what we think we need. Are your prayers primarily about yourselves and our little kingdoms, fixing our circumstances? Or does our love for God and his glorious kingdom characterize your prayers and what you ask for? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. A song I've really enjoyed recently is one sung by Fernando Ortega. I encourage you to look him up. He sings very soulfully, really rich words. He's all over YouTube. I love this song because it prays one of the purest prayers I think we could ask, we could pray. and It is this, Lord, if I could ask one thing of you. The one thing I would ask of you is that I would love you more. How pleasing that must be to God, that I would love you more with my life. I read the verse. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. What a great life prayer. Lord, I just want to love you more. Will you help me do that? How do we overcome disappointment? God is just. God is generous. Cultivate thankfulness. Hold loosely in order to hold tightly. Well, let's do that now as we pray. Let's pray.